and welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Gantz with Mike Miller, and we want to welcome you to the program. Uh, thank you for joining us. We are excited to be back here. Last week, both of us had to uh, take a little reprieve from the show, um, things going on, but uh, we are back, and um, the show that was planned for last week, Mike has rescheduled that to next week's program where we'll finish that chapter of Proverbs. But tonight, we have an exciting show. Mike and I are going to go at it, head-to-head, mano-a-mano. No. <laughs> now we're going to talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men. There you go. There you go. So, Mike, uh, this is an exciting one we're going to get into. Now, we've talked about stuff on the show. There are things we, we don't agree on. Uh, but yep. it's very rare. It's very rare mm-hmm. that there's things that we don't agree on. Um, and I will say this from the outset. When it comes to theology, Mike is like a go-to guy for me. Uh, Mike Mike knows his stuff. I would take Mike in a debate with anybody uh, that we bring on the show. That's why I always like go to Mike when, when somebody starts asking something hard. I'm like, so Mike, go ahead and respond to that. Because <laughs> Mike is the go-to guy. Mike, Mike is theologically sharp. But there are times where there can be blind spots like this one here. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Welcome to the program, brother. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes the lay people just need a little extra help. And us that have fought in the fierce battles of academia can can provide additional help and to steer them in the proper direction. Yeah. Well, I was appreciated. Try not to say say that all pompous, but (laughs) I appreciate it. But tonight we 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 hope to set the the record straight with Mike on this one at least, because on the other areas, Mike's definitely got me. But uh, we we are excited to to be back here on the program and to talk about this. I think it will be an interesting topic. And one of the things too, I think we want to lay out from the get go. Obviously, as you can see, me and Mike having some friendly banter here, but um, this is not a dividing issue. Not a dividing issue here. This is not something where uh, if you have people in your church that take one position or the other, that you need to divide and start kicking people out, (laughs) disciplining them out of the church. This is one of those areas where you can have um, some disagreements. Um, There are areas within theology that brothers and sisters in Christ, genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, can have disagreements. And, And this is one of those areas where uh, this is not something where we're putting people out into the heresy camp, um, if you believe that mm-hmm. fallen angels, you know, can uh, reproduce. But not, nonetheless, um, hey. it really is. It really is not something to divide over. And we can discuss these things in love. And I think it is important because um, there are people, as I've listened to some arguments on this over the last uh, couple of weeks, as we were kind of gearing up to this, there are people that have changed their position. They had one position and then later on, they began to study a little bit more and then maybe see things a little bit differently. And that happens in Scripture so long as, and I think, Mike, you will attest to this as well, so long as you're always going to a position because you you see the Scripture informing you that way. And we could be wrong in that at times, but because we're seeing the Scripture informing us that way, not because our favorite Bible teacher or podcast or you know whoever it may be um, is holding to one position. It should always be a position that we come to when we're looking at scriptures and let the scriptures inform us as to where we're going to go with those different topics. Right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, just even in this topic, I can tell you the class that changed my view. It was Greek exegesis 
of first Peter. And we talked about this. It shows up first Peter, second Peter and Jude. Um, and just my professor laying out, like looking at it in first Peter and trying to say, well, does first or second Peter does this affect how we understand Genesis six? Cause I think we can both say, hopefully we both say Genesis six is not clear on what they means. That, that's why there are different understandings of what the sons of God are. Um, I guess everyone kind of agrees that the dot of who the daughters of men are um, and kind of in that sense. And then also, you know, with the Nephilim, are they the offspring of this union? Are they a different type of people? Are they connected? We'll talk about it, you know, in numbers. And so it's good to think about these things, even if we don't change your mind, if I don't change Ricky's mind or if Ricky doesn't change my mind. Um, in the end, what we're debating on is an interpretive issue that helps us to try to better understand the scripture, but nothing that is that we're really debating on and thinking on, which is really kind of trying to help us to better understand scripture changes major theological, or even the, the point of the story of the depravity of man. And it's so bad that God has to destroy the entire earth and essentially recreate it. And now picking Noah and his family as the ones who will start this kind of second edition, we could say, of mankind and which we will see the Messiah come through. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to debate. We're not debating the flood. We're not debating why he's doing it. It's trying to better understand what is God telling us here in these first five verses, first four verses, and being just better students of the Bible, which just makes us more Berean in a, in a way. And it's a good exercise to engage in these types of ways. Yeah. And I think that's, that's important because uh, sometimes you hear it said like, why even address it? Why even discuss it? Why even debate it? Why even talk about it? It's, it's an area that's hard to, to, to grasp, or it doesn't give you a lot of clarity here in Genesis six. So, so why even do that? Because as Mike said, we want to be students of the Bible. We want to be students of the word. We want to we want to know what God is saying to the best of our ability as we are reading it and studying it and meditating upon it. Um, and it, it helps us to to grow in our study practices of how to take scriptures. You know, and Mike sitting here when you was talking about uh, your Greek class explaining this. I thought, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in trouble tonight. <laughs> so uh, but. Those kind of things help us because then you're you're um, laying certain things out that can help, you know, um, us dig deeper in understanding the flow of things and understanding the way you mentioned Greek and maybe how it's how it flows in the Greek, how it's laid out. So I mean, there's things that can help us to improve. While we may not just think of this one topic that we're studying tonight, but overall. How to how to look at things as we're we're trying to dig into God's words ultimately know what it is saying, and so I think go ahead. I think too, and I'll just say this on the onset: the position I hold has problems. I don't have all the answers. I don't think you know 
everyone can have all the answers and like there's a sealed tie. And so I'll admit there are things that we will talk about that I don't have an answer to that. I don't think scripture tells us about and is kind of left in the unknown. And that's okay. We're finite beings trying to understand what the infinite has given to us in our, in our language and in a way that we can to understand. And so I'll admit right now, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anyone has all the answers. Um, but then again, it's, you know, that working through here is all the evidence and what makes the most sense using the logic God has given to us to better understand this, this passage. And so it's always good to also be honest enough to know that we don't, don't know all the answers. And until we are given clarity by God in heaven, we won't know the answers. Right. And I, I would say likewise, you know, I, like there's things in here that I was looking at. Um, matter of fact, Jude, whenever we get to it, there was things in there and I'm like, yeah, I don't really know how to, how to, how to fit that in there. Um, but it, it hasn't changed my position. Although Mike may say some things tonight that kind of move me that way. Um, but it's one of those things is as Christians, we want to be open as I was saying in the beginning. And as Mike, you're just laying out there to go where the scriptures inform us to go. Right. Sometimes we may not see eye to eye. We may have an interpretation that's just not like fitting. Somebody may, um, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters will come and say, well, here's how I'm interpreting the scripture. And we look at it and say, yeah, I just don't see that. I, I don't see mm -hmm. that there. Right. It doesn't make them any less our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's just times where we see through the, the glass dimly. And as we continue to grow and study and meditate upon God's word and the spirit comes and illuminates more in the scriptures, we may gain more knowledge and insight in the word of God. Um, but it's one of those things that, doesn't give us an excuse to not study it, but it also, we have to recognize there are things like you just said that we don't know. And so we want to do the best that we can to be honest and upfront. And I always say that too, when we're evangelizing, um, if somebody asks you questions that you don't know, just be honest, just tell them, I don't know the answer to that rather than trying to pretend that you have it all figured out because we don't, there are tough passages. There are sometimes that people bring something up in the scripture and I'm like, you know, I, I really haven't come across that. So now I have to go dig in and study so that I can come with a more informed answer when next time it comes up and it does happen. So getting started, we're, we're dealing with Genesis six. That is the, the sons of God and the daughters of men. So I'm going to kind of read that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about it. We'll, we'll talk about first, I think uh, the, the couple different positions where the position I take, the position Mike takes, and Mike also brought up a, a third position uh, before the program. And we'll lay that out there. Uh, but here's what it says in Genesis chapter six. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man 
whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds and the heavens are of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then it gets into the flood, which again, Mike and I, we're not disputing that. We're not debating that. No. It happened. There was a flood of the entire world. Um, but this is the text in which we are discussing tonight here and the sons of God and the daughters of man. And so I take the position that this is not um, fallen angels, but when you look at Genesis chapter four uh, and it comes to the end, it gives you this line of, uh, well, it gives you these, this descendants of uh, uh, Cain from Cain on, right? So you have Cain and Abel that happens in Genesis chapter four, and then it gives you Cain's descendants, Cain's line. And then in Genesis five, it goes into these descendants of Noah coming back from Adam to Seth, who replaces Abel because Cain killed Abel. And so I take the position now that Seth's line is this sons of God. This is the godly line, the godly seed for which Satan is always seeking to try to destroy, right? And so this is the way that I take it. Chapter four, you're getting the, the line of Cain. Chapter five, you're getting the line of Seth. That brings us to this point now where we have Noah. And, and then it gives us this verse, the sons of God take the daughters of men. And that's the position that I take it. This is not fallen angels. I take it to be, this is human beings through the line of Seth that are the godly seed for which will bring forth the son of God. Um, whereas Mike's going to go ahead and give you his, um, the other side of that. So I guess before I give mine, I'll do the one that we're not talking about, which kind of fits in between. Um, there are some scholars that have said that the sons of God here do not refer to the Seth line. Um, it doesn't kind of looking at when man began to multiply and daughters were born to them, that this is mankind and it's kind of non-specific. but that the sons of God is a term that is used to regard royalty, to regard princes. And to think about it, this has a cultural background in which kings thought themselves to be God. I mean, we don't have to go far in the Bible and see that with Pharaoh. Um, Babylon has the same issues. They think themselves as gods or demigods. And so then the sons of God, and here it's Elohim. So it could be God or gods. And so there's interpretive on how do we exactly understand that. Um, that these could be descendants of royalty. They have this kind of power. Neither of us hold that position, but that is a third position that is kind of just, at least in the literature I was reading, was discussed as an option here. As Ricky said, I take that I think the sons of God here are fallen. Now, as Ricky set up, you have these lines of descendants with Cain and then with Seth. And they're important, and that's where the seed is coming. I think there's importance to think about how the promised seed is going to come to fruition. Um, but the term sons of God can refer to angels, to spiritual beings. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. Um, and so to say that the sons of God saw the daughters of men would be to say that these angels and they're fallen angels because of what they do um 
demons in in essence um go beyond their natural to do something that is unnatural and that is to come with the daughters of man now we know and we'll probably talk to this a little bit later angels seem to exhibit some human traits like eating we see that with abraham and so there's questions on whether my position even makes sense can they do can they procreate with humans is that possible um we'll get into that and so um thinking about kind of the sons as god as fallen angels would show this wickedness that's all over um while it is frowned upon in the torah in the law to marry outside of the kind outside of your tribe or your nation and we see even in abraham that happens um there's no real punishment for it and yet god here has a punishment so there there seems to be something more going on and just kind of this intermarried between a godly line and kind of all of the women that they have the option of doing. So those are kind of some of the things and we'll get into more. I think first Peter or second Peter helps us to understand this a little bit better. And some of the extra, extra biblical texts that go on with it. And in fact, it is second Peter, as I mentioned earlier, that really ch challenged my position and kind of moved me to frankly, the more harder position. So it's easier to say it's a godly line and the, the daughters of men. It is harder to say it is fallen angels. Yeah. I'll just kind of put that out there. Yeah. And, and, and when you said about it being fallen angels and that we do see angels appear in the form of a man, we see them eating. Mm -hmm. um, we see them go into Sodom and Gomorrah with lot. Um, there's so many things that we see them doing. Even, even the um, uh, Christophanies that we see where Christ comes and he takes on the form of, of human uh, of man. And he walks among with Abraham and he comes and, and he wrestles with Jacob. Right. So we see these things happening in scripture. And so I want to say that because I, some of the things that I heard in some of the argument or is that one is taking in my position, um, and you may say it's it's logical as well in the other position. So I'm not trying to say that one's more logical than the other, but I see it as this logical position of um, following the context of the the seed of these lines, Cain, and then the seed of or the line of Seth, and and saying that angels are not reproducing uh, offspring. But that's not to say that I don't believe that supernatural things don't happen, right? And we see this. Some of the examples that I have. Uh, just little examples. There's many of them that we can talk about, but you think of the parting of the Red Sea. This is a supernatural thing that happens. Uh, the fiery furnace, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down to the statue. There's, you know, they're they're kept, they're not even fringed or burned or, you know, at all. They're, they're kept from this fiery furnace. Um, and one like the Son of Man is in there with them, which I would say uh, would be Christ is in there with them. Uh, in this fiery mm -hmm. furnace. This is a supernatural thing that takes place. And the other one is that Balaam's donkey actually talks to him, right? And so these are supernatural things that we do believe, I do believe, even though I take this position that these fallen angels are not reproducing offspring, um, that supernatural things can 
happen and they do happen. And so um, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Mike, do you got anything to say about, about that or. Yeah, I think too. And this is kind of a difficulty in my position is what exactly is the nature of an angel? You know, we see them around. I mean, you have Paul talking about people entertaining angels with them. We see them with Lot. We see them, you know, coming with Christ and his pre-incarnate state to Abraham. Obviously, the angel of the Lord is an aspect in which he's there. And I think, um, and my theology on angels is not completely developed. And so, you know, knowing that there's holes there, there, there's an aspect in which how we understand the nature of angels matters. Like how much are they kind of like us and how much are they not like us? You know, and there's some of that in which they can appear and not appear. They're kind of invisible, but they can manifest given if that's their command or God allows it. And so to to think about the the nature of angels really gets difficult because the Bible's oftentimes in passing mentioning angels and we're just we're kind of gathering from very few um scripture verses and so i think that makes this you know obviously hard especially when you see the ideas of the sons of god being with the devil satan in jude one as they all come to the council of god well, that would appear to be now here that the sons of gods are angels. So the language, there is that language used there um, before them with Satan, which we know is um, the head of the, the fallen angels. And so they're just, you know, I was kind of thinking through these issues. You, there is theology that has to be in place to try to best figure out kind of what this means. Is this you know, is this the godly line or could this, could this possibly be angels and is given us in a mindset that um, they're while not with us because they don't have the image of God, but are somewhat similar. There's um, there's lots there. Yeah. All right. So the first thing that we come to then is in this text, the mention of the Nephilim. All right. It talks about this Nephilim, which is mentioned here in six, uh -huh. four. It's also mentioned in numbers 1333, but it says in, in verse four, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were, were of old, the men of renown. And I, I think when, when I'm reading this, I can take this a couple ways, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And and you can let me know what you think, Mike, but the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward. So in the days of Noah, they're already, you could read this, they're on the earth and they're also after um, this days of Noah, but it says, or maybe after when the sons of God came and took the daughters of men. So you could take that as the Nephilim are already there. And then the sons of God take them as the daughters of men or take the daughters of men. Right. And I think the position that 
you would take and those who would say with fallen angels is the Nephilim are the offspring of the fallen angels with the daughters of men. So I think you could take it in the way that I'm, I'm saying there where it's, it mentions the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God, or you could probably take that too. probably the position you would take is it's saying these Nephilim are there and they're the result of the sons of God taking the daughters of men. Right. So I think you could probably, you could, you could see that um, in the way that you're reading it. I would take it more of these Nephilim are there. Um, but then you have these sons of God taking the daughters of men. And obviously I've already explained what my position is on that. What do you think about how, how one could maybe read that? And obviously we're just looking at the, the English here on this, yeah. but, but go ahead, Mike. I mean, so you are correct. That I think originally I would have said that the Nephilim is kind of that offspring, but as you pointed out and some of the commentators I was reading just to kind of reconsider this a little bit more deeply, I haven't extensively studied this passage um, kind of in-depthly for a study or, or teaching in that um, that language is vague. So he's in those days and, you know, and also afterwards. So what is, what is Moses meaning by those days? Is he talking about kind of this pre-flood time? But also, also, um, afterwards, again, you have the conjunction when. So is that, is he trying to say, as you were mentioning, like there, the Nephilim are before and after when this event happened, when God sees this and that, you know, not to see it as procreation. I'm actually not sure where I, I land on this. So there is much more study I need to do on it. I see both sides. I think it's going to kind of, I think kind of reading, and this is coming from Matthews and his new American commentary. Um, he makes a pretty good case that this is probably the Nephilim are not a result of them, but he also takes that the Nephilim here are not the same Nephilim in numbers. And so, <coughs> Well, that's where I was going to go Go yeah. next is just that question. These are things you have to think through, right? Because if if the sons of God are these fallen angels who take these daughters of men to be their wives and they uh, produce offspring that happen to be these giants or these Nephilim, and God destroys the world due to this because and, and sends the flood, which wipes everything out, then what do we have happen? Do we have sons of God being fallen angels again? reproducing um, offspring when um, Nephilim are mentioned again in Numbers uh, 13, right? And so, I mean, that's that's one of those questions that come up where if God is wiping out the world through the flood and he wipes out the Nephilim, and this is because of what these angels have done, that he destroys mankind because of their intermixing with humans, then do we have this problem again? Then why does God, we don't see anything where he wipes them out there. One of the things I heard um, was from those who support the position that you have is that this was more worldwide in the first um, before the flood. And afterwards it was more localized just to the land of Canaan. Right. And so, but then again, I still, I don't see it anywhere saying that after the flood, 
that the sons of God again came and took the daughters of men. I don't see yeah. that in there. So it's one of those things again that you're trying to consider and think through, you know. Unless Noah's wives or Noah's wife or his son's wives had Nephilim and them, uh, it would be really hard to have Nephilim after the flaw, after the flood, if only eight people are saved. So yeah, I do think there is when you see the Nephilim here, um, that they're not necessarily the same. Now there may be because we have stories post obviously we have pre-flood stories. Um, is there similarities between the the Nephilim of numbers in how they act and according to the the stories or just trying to like claim the name to continue on whatever that might be. That's, I think it's a bigger argument. It's probably not an argument that can be sustained with any um, historical evidence that at least we currently have, but there is um, aspect. I did read something on this about the Nephilim kind of having a meaning of um of like of a god like kind of breaking down that it's a name um but i don't know if i can um find it real quick and some of the commentaries i have up so there may be something like in that like with nephilim as a representative group and in a way that is can then continued on in numbers. Yeah. Let me, let me explain maybe my position here. Um, and I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but um, in looking at that passage in numbers, right? You have the spies that go out into the land. This is numbers chapter 13. They go into Canaan or Canaan, not Canaan, but Canaan to spy out the land, to see what is there, this land that has been promised to them that's flowing with milk and honey. And so they go into the land and they come back and they give their report. And this is something that, that I, I'm, I'm looking at. And again, as Mike said earlier, um, we're just trying to look through this. And so there are areas here that I could be wrong in um, and, and need to maybe study further. But as I'm looking at this, it says in verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land which you sent us, meaning they're speaking to Moses, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. So it mentions the, the, the people are strong, and it says the cities are fortified, and the cities are very large. You know, we think of the walls of Jericho, this big structured cities, and here we're, we're tent dwellers. We're living in tents. These people have all this structure, you know, in these cities and in these um, surrounding their, their cities. But it says the cities were fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So there's this mention of the descendants of Anak. Um, and then it says the Amalekites dwell in the land and the end of, ne of Nagab, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But then Caleb steps in and says he quiets the people before Moses and said, let us go up and want at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb's saying, let's go take it. You know, yep. they should have listened to Caleb spent 40 years in the wilderness dwelling or, you know, should have listened to Caleb, but he said, let's should've, go. Should have, would have, should have, could have, would have, but he said, let's go and take it. They, like we can overcome it. 
And then they say again, and, and I'm, I'm looking at this. So, so where I'm going with this, Mike is I think they start to begin to embellish a little bit, you know, to the people uh-huh. to bring more fear. And so this mention of Nephilim might not even, it just could be a embellishment of saying the Nephilim. So is what we were talking about before. There may not be Nephilim after this point. Yeah. We, we do know that there are giants mentioned. We see uh, David and Goliath. We, we understand there's giants, but it says, but he says, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they say that again. He says, so they brought to the people uh, of Israel a bad report of the land and they had, uh, that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is the land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So now they're saying, these people are giants. They're, these people are of great height. Um, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. So we seemed, so and so we seemed to them. So I'm look. I'm reading that, and and I could be wrong in this, but I'm reading that as now they're embellishing the story. They they're looking at it. They're fearful of going in. Caleb's like, let's go take it. Now let's add a little more to say, look, we're like grasshoppers to these people here. These are the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go in there. We're gonna get crushed, right? And so that could be a possible way of reading it. That's how I'm kind of reading it. But um, yeah. go ahead, Mike. I think, and I think part of this too is somewhat like baptism is Nephilim is a transliteration of the Hebrew. And so the question is, what does this Hebrew word mean? Um, Kind of looking at one of my lexicons as you're talking about it um, and highlighting the Nephilim, there's an idea in which Nephilim means giant, tall. It's translated in the Septuagint as giant. So they're using the word giant for it. Again, And even so, when we think about here, word study and thinking through this, um, could, I mean, and it would fit the description of what you see is there's giants in the land. And to the giants, we feel like grasshoppers, you know, and again, I think overstating their fear that these are tall people, these are giants, um, you know, could play a play a part in that. And so then is, you know, going back to, cause it's the same author in Genesis four, could this just be Moses telling us that they're giants in the land, mm-hmm. you know, that, and these men of renown, like they, um, that are there, which would be interesting to think about in relation to this story, because God destroyed them with the flood and he's stronger than these giants. And then now here are the people afraid when like Caleb, they should, well, no, we, we have God, we can overtake them. <clears throat> yeah. Not that we're exiting this, but there is that um, to, you know, here and looking at the word, what does it mean under trying to understand what it is in context and realizing Sometimes translators just, they don't always translate the word. You want to go ahead and read that, Mike? Um, yeah, this can be said how to, and similar to how in English we have adopted the word Philistine to mean brutish. So if you're a Philistine. Yeah. I think also even going back yeah. to um, 
when we were in Genesis four, when in reading it, say you read it the way I was reading it, where you see the Nephilim are in the land and then you see the sons of God take the daughters of men saying that there were giants then too, right? Um, which could be produced from just regular offspring of, you know, um, people having somebody that yeah. have genes that produce someone of very large stature, you know, and I'm not talking about like there is, um, I, I don't remember the term, but when you, if you, if you remember wrestling, there was like Andre the giant and he had some type of, he had some type of giant syndrome thing. Um, yeah. I don't remember the word or the name of it. And there's also with Ripley's believe it or not, there's that really tall guy. Um, uh -huh. and they have this giantism again, I don't remember the term, so forgive me, but they have this where, where you look at others who are very tall and, and those, those individuals are not as athletic or, um, able to move with the type of, uh, ability like we see maybe with Goliath as this mighty warrior, right? Yeah. But when it's you like think a taller of Shaq. Yeah. When you think of yeah, guys so. like Shaq or some of these other big guys, you see some of these football players who are six, seven, six, eight, you know, and they're running that field faster than I can, you know, <laughs> faster than I can run. You know what I mean? And these are like 300 pound individuals, right? Um, so it could be that. And then it may not be. Again, I don't want to mm -hmm. look at those and say, well that's has to be this. But it are things we need to consider, you know, so it, it, this is why I kind of brought that up is I think they're embellishing here. And as you know, um, your wife said there and it could just be Moses saying, look, there's there's giants in the land as well. Not saying that these are actually fallen angels reproducing again. Uh -huh. Right. Because this is the only two times it's mentioned Nephilim in the scripture. Giants is mentioned. But as far as the, the term Nephilim, this is the only two times or it's only mentioned the two times. But it's also within the context of of Moses writing these first five books, right? In the other references, I think uh, when it comes to giants, yeah, we see it in Samuel and Chronicles. So you have a different author writing that. Even though it's still inspired by God, you have a different author, the human author, right? So, all right. So speaking of giants, and again, I said, we, we see this in Second Samuel mentions about giants. We think of uh, David and Goliath. We see that there and we see with the Chronicles. I think we're going to kind of move past that unless you there's anything you want to throw out there with that, because we've taken no, a lot fine. of time already just on the, the little bit that we've been in. Um, yeah. And then it also we, we see the sons of Anak mentioned I, I, in, in Joshua 15, 13. It does give us uh, these three sons of Anak that Caleb goes and he drives them out. Uh, and so we, we won't really dig into that too much. But let's get into the sons of God. Uh, so we see this here in Genesis 2 and Genesis 6. And then we also see it in some other passages in the New Testament, this reference to sons of God, right? But I think where, where we get into question is, we see it in Job. In Job, we have the mention of sons of God, Job 1.6, um, Job um, 2.1, and Job 38.7. These are references to the sons of God. It says in 1.6, it says, now there were, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And he tells him he's been, you know, going to and fro on the earth. Um, and so this is the reference that people will go to and say, okay, sons of God here is referring to angels. And I actually taught on this passage at church maybe a couple months ago just at hard passages we were looking through. And I, and I said, this is also referencing angels. So I want to state that my position may change, have changed,
But I also want to state that this could be angels or maybe it could not be angels, this reference to it. But either way, I think there are times where we see passages or we see references to something that doesn't always mean the same thing. Would you agree? Like sometimes you'll, you'll have um, Elohim, as we talked about, mentioned, we, it's a reference to God, but it also is mentioned in, what is it, Psalm 82, are ye not gods? It can also be a reference to human beings uh, that are in high positions, that they are Elohims, they are gods, you know? Um, and so the word, based upon the context, I think dictates how it's being used. So I think we can agree mm -hmm. on that. Um, but I'll talk about why I'm, I'm kind of looking at and I, I could be completely off in that. But there's a I, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, I don't think the sons of God here is referring to angels. But I'll, 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 I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but Mike, any thoughts here? We're talking about the sons of God uh, from Job, which is where we normally would go to and say, this is why we take this as sons of God in Genesis to mean fallen angels. Yeah. So... I think, you know, on using word studies is it's always context drives meaning. So words can have multiple meanings, especially Hebrew words are very notorious for having different meanings, depending on like even the verb tense. Um, for example, um, the word for stab and murder are the same. It's just the difference in um, the the tense where stab is just kind of like you do it once where then there's another tense where it's like this repeated motion and that's murder. So you're like stabbing a person multiple times, kind of the idea. Um, and so when we think about words, especially when we think about words that don't seem to have a clear meaning, how do we understand them? This comes up uh, even earlier in a different example in um, Genesis 3, where God tells um, Eve that her desire is to rule over her husband. And the word rule there is then used again in Genesis 4 to having like... Um, this negative I sense of sin ruling over you, but there's another reference somewhere. And I, I don't remember off the top of my head um, where that language is used, but it's a positive thing, not negative. And so you come to Genesis three and you have to try to decide, well, is this a positive thing or a negative thing? I think the same thing comes to, because you'll probably go to other places where the Israelites are called sons of God. Well, now we have to decide, well, is that the meaning Moses is trying to tell us here? Or is he changing that in a different, for a different sense? And again, this is what makes kind of these debates, not debates, these discussions or even debates, um, trying is because there's so much mm -hmm. depending on how you weigh the evidence to how you're going to lean. And again, our job is to be diligent in our work and to make sure we are using our word studies appropriately for these, because I do think 
especially in the fact if we date Job to be around the time of Abraham, that having this idea of sons of God plays an important part of when Genesis 6 is talking about. But the problem is, is that Moses doesn't always use that language to refer to angels. And so how does that, you know, now I have to even consider how Moses uses his words. And so there's a lot to go in and, and discussing these, especially when you get into word studies because of sometimes the broad nature of a word and what it can mean and what it symbolizes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's very key because you mentioned that because when you look in the scripture and the way that the, the references used for angels, you don't see sons of God being mentioned normally, you know. Um, so you're 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 looking at okay, what could this mean? Here's why I've come to this conclusion. Now I just today started thinking about this. So again. This is something I'm, I'm still looking at because I tried to look at some commentaries just to see. And the majority of comedy, the majority of commentaries were not on my side on this because they refer to this as being angels. And it could be, I'm not saying that it's that it has to be one or the other. I think you can say that these are angels here, but yet still say that the sons of God in Genesis six, is not referring to fallen angels inter having intercourse with, with humans. Right. So it, it could be that, but my, as I was looking at this and thinking through this, what really grabbed my attention in this, and it gives, goes back to the word study as you was talking about, because it could be used differently, is came to present themselves, present themselves. And so I looked in the lexicon here on the one that I have with Logos. It's a free one that popped up because <laughs> I don't have that uh, detailed of a uh, library yet. Um, I tried to look for one and it was like $33 to buy it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying that. <laughs> no. yeah. So I'm like, not tonight. Not tonight. And it was like $600. I'm like, yeah, oh, no, Ooh. I'm not going to buy that. Yeah. Not tonight. Um, yeah. $600. That would be a payment plan for like 10 years for me. But um, uh, when I'm looking at this, this reference, the way that this is used to present oneself in it's used in Job 1.6 and 2.1. But it's also used in Deuteronomy 31, 14. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. It also says it in Joshua 24, 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel and Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So we're seeing this presenting of themselves before God, and it's not referring to being in heaven. Now, it could be that that's where they are here in Job. This is something that I've just kind of was looking at today, and I could be completely way off. So I'm not saying take this and run with it. This is not my, my uh, um, nail in the coffin kind of like, this is my argument. I'm sticking to it, and boom, I got you. No, it's just something I was thinking about today because... Even when you see, again, Judges 22 says, And the chiefs of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. You know, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. And so there's there's a couple more references to Samuel and, and whatnot. Um, but I just thought, is it possible? And again, when I was looking at some, some commentaries so far, I, I didn't see that they were saying that these weren't angels here as sons of God. 
So the consensus so far, and I only looked at a, a few couple commentaries, is that this here in, in Job is referring to the sons of God. So I'm not trying to invent something new, but I'm just saying I'm thinking through this and thinking it could be possible, right, that this is coming and presenting themselves. They're coming to present themselves before the one true and living God, in, not in, in heaven, but just coming to present themselves before God. And Satan is coming in their midst, you know? And, and I told my wife, when I was thinking about this, that it reminded me of, and I don't recommend watching the passion because I'm against images of Christ. I'm just, that's just throwing it out there, but I did see it way back. And I remember when Christ is being offered up to be uh, um, um, sacrificed and you see Satan kind of in the crowd of the people just there watching and observing. And so it could be that I could be completely off, but that's just a position I'm, I'm kind of looking at right now. Um, but I would want to, I would feel more comfortable if I could find some others at somewhere in some commentary that would support that as well. But it's just something that I'm thinking at, you know, so go ahead. Hopefully you don't toss me out on the heretic side. I mean, <laughs> no, I think like in those two examples, it just seems more that they're just presenting self before God and it, and obviously the location is probably going to be determined by the context. So if these are angels are they, I mean, I guess the question is where are they presenting themselves? If it's not heaven, there's no temple like um, Moses and Joshua. So, and in one sense they're he's, they're coming before them. They're coming before God's glory. And so is there this, this to present themselves is to stand before God in his glory, Abraham or Moses and Joshua do it in the temple where his glory dwells here. The angels are in, in heaven where his glory also is shown. So that would probably be, you know, but again, you know, that's the importance of word studies in context. Mm -hmm. um, words um, only have meanings within context. And so you have to use them to have, have a valid meaning. And so that's what makes, again, this makes this hard because an argument against my position, it's a very valid one, is that sense of God is never used beforehand. There is no reason to think about this as fallen angels. Um, and so, again, the, the question is, where does that evidence lies? Because when it's first kind of used, is in reference to Israel and in, in reference of a chosen people um, that God calls. I mean, we're called sons of gods in the new Testament mm -hmm. again, reflecting that thing. So there's the question is where, you know, where it lies. I think with Job leads to my conclusion, not because Job says it, but because of other verses that make sense with it mainly and we'll probably hopefully we'll get to it um thinking through especially second peter but also first peter and jude yeah yeah and as you mentioned there when it comes to sons of god we see it always referred to in the new testament as those who believe um you can become a son of god you can be a child of god by believing in christ but also you see it in luke where um it goes through this genealogy of jesus christ in chapter three and it ends when it's coming down to this, this genealogy, and it says, 
uh, in 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, again, this line that that's just the position that I'm taking. And it says the son of Adam, the son of God. And so as Luke is laying this out, he's referring to this as Adam being the son of God. And again, trying to use scripture to interpret scripture and having the new Testament mm -hmm. as a light that shines upon the old Testament in areas where we don't necessarily see. This is, this is one of the, also the reasons why I kind of take this as this is being that this is humans of the godly line. That's going to bring about the son of God, the actual, uh, the Messiah, right. Being this godly line, not that everybody in it was godly, but that they were, or not that everybody in it was saved or believers, um, but that they were to bring forth this Messiah, the godly line, as opposed to Cain's ungodly line that is always at enmity, seeking to kill and attack and be at war with. But those are some of the things there. Um, the other argument I have, and then I'm just going to say this quickly, Mike, you can um, you know, discuss it how you want to, and then we'll move into those passages that you want, because I want to give you time to exegete those that passage. I mean, we'll, we'll probably go over, but to, to exegete that and spend the majority of your time explaining that because I'm, I'm actually looking forward to hearing what you're going to say from the Greek when it comes to second Peter. But the other thing is for, for my position is after their own kind, right? I don't see if, if angels are not created in the image of God, but man is created in the image of God and everything produces after their own kind. We use this argument when it comes to evolution. We say, no, that you can't take a, a cat, which is from the feline kind, and mix it with a dog, which is from the canine kind, and have some hybrid. It doesn't happen. You can take other dogs or other animals within the canine um, kind and mix them together and have certain breeds, right? Different breeds of dogs, some terrible breeds of dogs that are out there today, but, you know, especially the little ones that love to bite you and snip. But, um, but, uh, you, they still only produce after their own kind, right? And so I think that to state that angels, these fallen angels who are not created in the image of God, who are a creation of God, but man is created in the image of God, and they produce after their own kind. So I think for, for me to kind of move towards it being an angel or a fallen, fallen angel, right? There would have to be something in scripture that show me that angels can reproduce. Now I did. I know we 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 talked about. You, you mentioned we do see angels taking on the form of, oh, excuse me, taking on the form of man and eating and sleeping and doing things that appear to to be what men do. But as far as reproducing, um, I think then you I I believe you have a problem here, and it also takes me to Hebrews, when in Hebrews when he's laying out that in these last days I speak to through my son. I went to the prophets and and now I'm speaking through my son. And when he starts to compare Christ to other things, he says, to which of the angels have I ever called my son? Have I ever called my son? But only Christ is called his son. And so that's another thing that, that, that brings me in, in to think about, okay, I don't think that the sons of God is referring to these angels because he says, to which of my, the angels have I ever called my son? Right? So it's, again, some things that I'm, I'm trying to think through and, and to use to support my position but again, as you said in the beginning, there's always holes and there's always ways in which people can, you mm -hmm. know, show something different that says, okay, well, here you go. Let me give you these to chew on and, and think about and consider. Yeah. So, I mean, I could really skate if I hold that the Nephilim and not the byproduct of 
angels and humans. I really can skate around that problem. Because <laughs> who says they did produce? Um, I think, and and that's like the that's kind of the big hole in my argument is can angels. I mean, I guess theoretically, if they can appear as men, they can act like men. But is there something that happens? I think and that's that's the question you're, I think, pushing at. Because I think you would probably agree with me that theoretically they could uh, defile the marriage bed um, appearing to be a human. Um they obviously can do that. Now, whether something comes from that, I think is a different question. Um, and again, I just don't have good answers. I think that's the biggest thing is, um, you know, the nature of angels and what can they and can't they do like us in humans? Obviously, they can appear just like us and they can eat. We don't have them sleeping, so maybe they can't sleep. Um, so I think that's, again, I can think, you know, there's a valid argument to be said there, but if all they're doing is taking wives and there's no, fruit from it in children i mean that can be a devastation to the seed to wipe out the seed again i think obviously this is just kind of me thinking through these things i don't have a good answer i think it's a valid a very valid critique against my position that i really haven't heard anyone in my position talk about they just kind of assume in some sense that something is happening because you have this judgment on um, men because of it. Yeah. And, that, and then the only thing where I would look at that too, is when it comes to the wickedness of, of man's heart is evil continually and God mm -hmm. brings about judgment is God judging. And, and you mentioned something that I would hope you can clarify for me, but is God judging the wickedness of man or is God judging these hybrids, these um, what we even see with Greek mythology, these, uh, these yeah, demigods. demigods. Yeah. Demigods. Right. Is he, is he judging that or is it because he mentions this wickedness of man? Sin comes into the world through man, through one man, sin comes into the world and death through sin. And so yeah. we're seeing this reference to man, not well, these angels reproduced. And that's what I, you mentioned about, of reproducing. So maybe you could clarify. Cause I, I was kind of like, do you not believe that these angels are reproducing offspring or was that just something you threw? I just saw that son there. Like, I think that's a question that, you know, if you think about your argument about kinds, like, is there a sense of which could that even produce offspring? And I don't have an answer to it. Um, it's just, kind of thinking through that issue but to kind of relate to the issue and maybe this is the point i think it drives to the point of what's the point of the story is 
the point of the story is is seeing the destruct seeing the sinfulness of men so obviously when the lord saw the wickedness of man it is the word adam it is mankind it is that general word used again similar found in 6 1 to talk about everyone on the earth um is there this judgment because they're not discerning you know in one sense their evilness their wickedness um is is leading to it is is moses's emphasis on the fact that the the his fallen angels are coming down or is his focus on the men and the evil that is on the earth that leads to god um wanting to destroy the earth to remake it to show his power and his judgment to it and i think that's why there's a lack of clarity in it is like we see in other angels it's kind of presented and moved on and it's more of a side point to the bigger point of how evil these people are and so i think there's there's an element in there that there is no judgment at least in genesis referring to what the angels have done yeah all right so mike now we're going to give you a, a large amount of time however you you need to look at these other passages because this is where you i think as you said you're now where your position changed by looking at this with second uh -huh. peter in greek and so go ahead either you can do either jude or you can do second peter or i mean whichever order you want to do them so in. i'm going to do second peter this is kind of where um i thought about the most i think it's it's clearer in second peter than it is in jude and and what it means and so just to have kind of a context um about it it starts off in fact we talked about this verse last december um or no in january february um so second peter 2 but false prophet rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you and you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing up themselves swift destruction and many will fall on their sensualities and because of them the way of truth will be blas blasphemed and in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and the destruction does not sleep. So, as we talked about then that show with Andrew, kind of thinking through this, is you have false prophets. It's coming from among the people. And Peter is trying to argue that, look, they're going to come, but their judgment isn't idle. Their judgment isn't asleep that God's going to judge them. And then he gives an example in verses four through 10. And he goes for, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to keep them until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world to preserve Noah, the herald of righteousness and seven others who brought a flood upon the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to ashes he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed in the central context of the wicked for as a righteous man he lived among them day after day 
and he tormented his righteous soul from their right lawless deeds that they saw and heard. Then the angel of the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to keep the upright under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust and defile passions and despise authority. So, so Peter makes gives kind of three examples, uh, three negative examples and two positive examples. Let me rephrase that. The first one is he did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. So these angels, they've sinned, and God has punished them. He's kept them there to judgment. I'm going to set that aside while it's important to the discussion, but I'll come back to it. I don't know how I feel, why I think this is. So we have the words angels here. He's clearly identified them, who they are. Next, the next judgment is that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So this is in direct recognition of our text. It's the beginning of it. God judges the world in Genesis 6. And in verse 6, he turns then to another judgment, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then what happens? He rescues Lot, which is the positive example. So you have this idea of judgment and rescue. Now we look at the text, and all of these are if statements. So if God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved, if he had not, if he turned turning the cities of Gomorrah condemned them if he rescued righteous lot so you have this example of God judging someone and rescuing judging a people group and rescuing the godly see that in Genesis 6 but these are tangible examples that his readers who are primarily Jewish could go back in the Old Testament and see. In fact, when we think about God, verse 5, that God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, we can go back and say, okay, we can see that. So the question is, if he's giving tangible examples that are in the Bible, when he first mentions angels, when does this occur? Now, those who hold to Ricky's position would say, well, this would have been before the fall, before it happened sometime before the before the event and just talking about this event but if that's the case then how is the readers are supposed to know that their condemnation has been long ago like there's no tangible element i think the more viable option is that versus four five verses four and five talk about one event the genesis six event that the angels who indulge in lust defiling passion and despise authority which is what they've done by despising god's authority and their position in place came to heaven we see that they're punished that they're cast down to hell and I think a reason why Peter is using this as an example is because, and this was on Ricky's notes to discuss, is that 
um, this is in the extra biblical language of the Jewish people, specifically and most notably in First Enoch, though not exclusively. This isn't just one random thing in First Enoch. This is an understanding that the Jewish religious leaders had and understood within the text, and Peter is drawing upon that. Now, First Enoch is not inspired, nor are we claiming it's expired. And so, like Jube, the question is, is what they're saying being confirmed by God now in special revelation as he has Peter to write this? And I think he's drawing on this tradition and God's having it to help us interpret that that is the event that's happening. Because without this, without Second Peter, I think the more logical conclusion would be to say that you have these two lines. But I think Peter is helping us by the Spirit to interpret that event, that these angels came down and did something wrong. They indulged into lust of defiled passions and despised authority. And because of that, because of now this great wickedness, not only with these angels who did receive judgment, they also corrupted the world even more in order that God has to now limit how long his spirit is on the earth, but then also to judge those people because of their wickedness. But then we see Noah being saved. And so there's this event, salvation, event, salvation. I think that's how the text reads um, in kind of this nice little idea that we have Peter is now pulling from tangible examples from the Old Testament that we can under that we can see and understand how God preserves the godly, but will punish the ungodly. Yeah, I see it as giving those examples as just examples, kind of like where in Romans nine, when Paul gives these examples of God's election and he talks about Jacob and Esau, and then he talks about Moses and Pharaoh, um, just giving examples of this is what I'm laying forth because I'm trying to tell you about God's election. And I think Peter here is speaking about these false prophets and saying, look, just because again, these, these people come in and they're, they're these wicked individuals prepared for, um, appointed from long ago, as we see in Jude, uh, these without uh, waterless clouds, these false teachers, right? Clouds without water. Um, then then we're seeing him then lay out, look, he didn't spare the angels. He didn't spare uh, those in the time of Noah, except for Noah and his his uh, sons and, and their wives. Um, and then also goes on and speak about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that surrounded them as well. I think he's laying those out. I can see where you're, how you're laying, how you're, you're explaining that. And if, if you're correct in that, and that's what it's saying, then yes, I think that would be a, a, um, a position towards your, or a, a, a leaning towards your side as far as this text goes. But I don't, I still don't, I'm not persuaded that that's what it's saying. Because I think in the context of Genesis 4, as it's laying out, we're seeing these lines of men. In the context of Genesis 5, we're seeing this line of Seth. And then it goes into now this, 
I think the context just flows. It doesn't bring in that angels. It's not using anything but sons of God, but then comes in and takes this. So that's kind of, I still don't, I still don't take it as that. See, but, but even the examples you gave, let's, you know, Romans nine, you know, the, while they're examples, those, those examples come out of an interpretive framework by showing, by noticing, Hey, um, the language that Moses is writing when he's talking about Pharaoh shows that Pharaoh has elected Moses to, or God had elected Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. Mm-hmm. There's a language, the, the interpretation of Exodus brings about into now this, the example you, so there is a connection between exegeting the, the text, the example and bringing over those principles. And I think Peter's doing the same thing. I think Peter is showing, telling us that why the world is ripe now for um, destruction is because you have this small story of having these fallen angels intermingling with the daughters of men. And it creates a, a world full of wickedness that God judges saving Noah. So there's interpretive um, aspect of understanding Genesis one through four in a way that he can turn around and say, these are, here's an example. And to think about it, the, for most of the early church, they are holding to this understanding. It's not until later do you start receive um, people reconsidering um, whether the sons of God is angels. And so um, I think Peter is shedding light on what's happening there um, because as the spirit tells us, and he is interpreting the scripture the same way as Paul is interpreting, um, you know, Esau and Jacob and the Moses and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hearts being hardened. And it's, there's a similarity in hermeneutics, which leads to kind of this position. I think in just that, judgment salvation judgment salvation as a whole um kind of playing out because there is no again there is no story in the old testament which the other examples are pulling from of angels being cast into hell and so it has to come now you know obviously it's here coming from the Jewish tradition and Peter writing to Jews would have known this tradition. Um, but I still, I think by the spirit given us kind of how we are to properly understand, um, that text, even in the difficulties. Yeah. 
No, I, I think I agree with you as far as it being connected is in, in the text and similar examples as with Paul in, in Romans 9. I'm just saying I don't see that as it being that this is referring then to angels having intercourse with humans, fallen angels, and then creating some offspring. And then I think it also brings the questions to mind. And these are just things I think that we, we have to consider and think about. Why does God judge man? Is it because of the wickedness of man or is it because of an offspring of a demigod? Is he, is he judging demigods or is he judging the wickedness of man? Is, is, is the focus is about through one man, sin comes into the world that all are born sinners, um, not through half man, half demigod. Those are just things, those, those are things that hold me up from saying, yeah, I can see this position being that, you know what I mean? But go ahead. But it, yeah, it takes two to tango though. So it's not just the sin of the angels. Like, it's not like humans are not, are complacent. Obviously, I think the text tells us that, that they are, they're obviously sinful. Like, if it was just angels who are doing, were doing something wrong, and God is judging humans, that's not fair. You know, there's not, God doesn't judge humans. Um, Try to word this carefully. Um, God wouldn't judge the humans if they did not sin in that way. And so I think, and the text is clear that, you know, it's the sinful of sinfulness of men. They're just, there's a, so I don't think you have to hold to like, he's not, that it's not, he's giving out judgment. Um, it's late and my brain's not quite clicking. Right. Um, I think with the text, the emphasis is on while the angels come and they take wives with, um, the daughters of men, the daughters of men are not without excuse. And their own, there's a sense in which their own sinfulness is played into it, which is deserving of the judgment of God. So I don't know if there's like, there's an element. And I think then the focus of the story, again, the focus of the story is not on the, the angels, but the sinfulness of men. And the, the encounter with the fallen angels highlight how sinful mankind was when the sons of God, the fallen angels married the um, daughters of man. Yeah. Or did you want to touch on um, Jude at all? Or did you want to? Uh... We can cover Jude. Speak of Jude. And here Speak comes Larry. Thanks, Larry. <clears throat> I haven't really researched you on, on this. Well, I think if, if we, we cover this and then we'll kind of, we'll wrap it up. So this way yeah. we can, cause as you said, you know, it is getting late um, and we've gone a little bit over a lot over, but it's a good, it's a big topic. And so we're, we're looking mm -hmm. and trying to examine this, but, but go ahead. If whenever you get to Jude, just let me know. So Jude uh, specifically, he said Jude six, I'll read um, Jude five through seven. Obviously Jude is only one chapter. So, um, 
You don't have to say chapter one. Um, so Jude writes, now I remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved a people from the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy judgment until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example of undergoing punishment to the external fire. Um, again, Jude is referencing the same tradition Peter Peter is. Um, there's often questions on which one quotes it first and who's quoting from the other. Um, obviously, they have similar ideas about... Well, Peter is focuses on false teachers. Here, Jude is just focusing on those who do not believe, which um, probably mirrors a little bit better as an example to Genesis 6. How you do it? But again, he's quoting Jewish understanding of the passage about the angels not staying within their authority of the power, but left their proper dwelling. Um, and they're now in judgment. They're in glooming darkness, waiting for the judgment. Um, and Sodom and, Gomorrah, um, Sodom and Gomorrah also. It is interesting that Jude mentions which likewise indulge in sexual morality. So I got some what. What I was gonna say, I got something on that. Um, that in kind of referring to it seemingly the what these angels did as proper as not staying within their, their position of authority are indulging in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desires, which exact which would match kind of the context, if I'm correct, of Genesis six that they left their proper authority and they've done something that is unnatural, which again, I think we can see that even in, um, because I guess it's implied within the text, um, of within it. And so now they, and then those people, Sodom and Gomorrah, serve as an example of punishment of eternal fire. Yeah. See where, as I, I don't see it as being implied in the text to state that fallen angels inter had intercourse with and took as wives, human beings, but I do see it as examples. And I think as it talks about these angels and it says who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept an eternal James until uh, the day of judgment or this day of great uh, judgment of the great day, just as those in Sodom and Gomorrah are kept in judgment right now, because we do believe that those who die apart from Christ right now are condemned. They're, they're, they're in hell. They're experiencing uh, punishment, but they'll be cast into that lake of fire on that final day when that final judgment is, is made. So death and Hades or death and hell will then be cast into this final judgment. So I don't necessarily see it as it's it's saying that these angels, I don't see it being implied that the angels had sex with women. Um, I, I see it as he's using those examples the same way as I see it in 
in Peter, using those as examples, and then says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah as well, that they're another a place that left their authority, or they're another place that that was wicked and sinful. Um, and the surrounding cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which uh, likewise, you could see it that way. I guess you could say with the with um, which likewise, you could say, well, I I can see why you would say it, or you could see it that way. That's what I'm because it's homoousios. Yeah, homoousios. Come like on, where you're seeing it, but it's like, but indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So they're serving as this example of the sin. I think what we're seeing is these these examples given of those who are being judged. And the judgment doesn't just happen at the end of time in the final judgment. Those who have sinned against God are already being judged, right? They're already experiencing hell. They're experiencing um, wrath upon them. Uh, when you die, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. They stand before God and they are judged. And so I, I see it as that way. I think, again, it comes down for me, um, in listening to you explain those, I can see, again, why someone would take those positions. I don't see them as being implicit within the context. I think you have to, I believe, and I could be wrong. Maybe it's my presupposition. But I think that having the presupposition of them being fallen angels leads to then using these texts to interpret it as that. You know what I mean? Whereas um, one could probably say the same about me because I have this position of sons of God not being these angels, the falling angels, then that could lead to that that presupposition. But I think that it it really comes down to me is one, you would have to prove from the scripture that angels can produce outside of their kind, that when we see that all creation of God produces after their own kind, can angels reproduce if they're not created in the image of God? Even though they can take on the form of man, they're not man, they're angels. Um, and then when it comes to the sin of man, even in the garden, when he comes and she says, uh, Adam says, well, this woman that you gave me, gave me this fruit. He's responsible for his sin. The woman tries to blame it off on the, on the serpent. She's responsible for her sin. Right. I think that, and again, not that Satan can't deceive us and tempt us and seek to get us to sin, but we're not responsible uh, for saying, well, the devil made me do it. No, you chose to sin. And I guess you could probably say um, that, well, yeah, in that same sense, the man, because you did say it earlier, that the man still had to partake of that. I just, again, I, I can't see, and again, this is why I said in the beginning, not that I'm against supernatural things. I just don't see angels, fallen angels, being able to produce after a kind that they're not. Because God doesn't lay that out to us in Scripture anywhere. We, we see that they produce after their own kind. We see that, again, for me, the progression of you have the sons of, of, Seth, of, of uh, Cain, then you have the sons of Adam, or, or you know, or, through Seth, this godly seed. And just context, I think, as it's laying out, it's showing you this. You got Genesis 1 and 2, the creation. Genesis 3, the fall of man. Sin comes into the world. Genesis 4, because of sin coming in the world, you see Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And then you see Cain's line. Then you see in Genesis 5, Seth's line. And then you see the sons of God take the daughters of men. And I think just the progression of that, for me, it leads me to the position that I hold to. Obviously, you disagree and you see it differently. And that's why this is such a, uh, it's an interesting topic to, to study and to look at. I had stuff we could talk about when it comes to um, the book of Enoch as well and, and things like that. But it is a thought that was in their mind, right? 
in that time frame. Um, another thing that you mentioned too about the, the early church had held a certain view. We also know the early church at times um, has held views that were contrary to what we would hold to today. You know, and then in the fourth century, they start to um, go back and not develop in the sense of creating a new doctrine, but to really sit down and dig those out and come to the, the Trinity and whatnot, you know, and, and, and not that they weren't there, you know what I mean? But they start to be able to have the time to sit down and have the councils to deal with things that are coming in that are contrary. So that I don't think is necessarily um, something that would move me to a different position, you know, just a lot I'm trying to throw out there and trying to be as quick and as I can, because, you know, time's running low. Mike, last thoughts, words, persuade the audience your way and, and then we'll move on. So obviously as you, I mean, we've had some fun and we've laid out some evidence. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to um, two things, weighing the evidence, which evidence seems most likely, but, but most importantly, and secondly, it's just prayer. Cause ultimately, um, our positions are only correct as in they are true representations of what the text has. And we actually need a better interpreter than our minds to help us um, by the spirits. We talked a little bit about this in denominations. This is why denominations comes because we have fallen intellect. Um, the God of this God spirit doesn't, and he can guide us in truth. And so when you're thinking about this, if you're going over, you're examining, you're doing your exegetical um, work, you're moving from exegesis to biblical theology and even systematic as you think about these things and how they all play into it. Um, all of this has to be guided by the spirit and leaning on the spirit for understanding and leading where you think the spirit leads you. And um, I think difficult passages like this in the Bible make us rely on the Spirit's work of informing our hearts. Um, because it can go either way. The text in and of itself on the issues of the Son of God is not clear. And to understand it, is to make inferences and in using the Bible to interpret itself. And again, that just requires careful study and the power of the spirits um, to use that study to shape us and to ground us in the knowledge of God. And that's the, and that's the point. And so that was kind of to kind of wrap it up, not to try to convey people, but just to, those who want to think about this, get the commentaries, you know, try to study it out as much as you can, figure out where you land, but ultimately rest in the spirit and pray that the spirit will guide you to the proper interpretation given the faculties he has given to you. And that's, and that's the best we can do. Amen. And so Mike and I will be back next week. Um, and we had a last controversial topic. Yeah. Talking about Proverbs uh, 23. I think that's where we are. We're closing out chapter 23. Yeah. And uh, so until then, 
God bless and good night.